Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a new book from Faith Matters Publishing. It's called Restoration by Patrick Mason. Um, When we started the Faith Matters Publishing Project, one of our goals was to explore what restoration really means as the church moves into its third century, and that's exactly what Patrick does. If you're like me and you've ever wondered how restoring Israel can be relevant to you, you've got to read this book. Patrick shows how, as members of the church, it's our mission to truly lead out in bringing wholeness and healing to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This book absolutely lit a fire for me, and it has totally changed the way I view my own engagement with the church and with the world. I really can't recommend this book strongly enough. It's the kind of book you want everyone you know to be reading too, so that you can talk about it. So you can pick up a copy for yourself or for your friends and family at Desert Book, um, Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. Okay, that's it on the book for now, but we'll be sharing a lot more in the near future. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hi friends, welcome to the Faith Matters Podcast. The Faith Matters Foundation is dedicated to exploring a thoughtful and expansive view of the restored gospel. For more podcasts, articles, and community, go to faithmatters.org. Welcome to uh, Faith Matters podcast, and I'm here with a couple of my great friends, uh, Tom Christofferson and Patrick Mason. Hey, guys. Hi there. Also, uh, members of members of our uh, advisory board at Faith Matters Foundation, and very helpful. Thank you for that so much. Uh, just an introduction for those of you who don't know. Uh, start with Tom. Tom is uh, currently residing for as of fairly recently in Phoenix. He fled to warmer climes. And I've been enjoying hearing the weather reports of all the snow in Utah ever since. <laughs> it snowed last night here, so yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, but. Uh, Tom is a retired Wall Street banker now, has given his life to teaching seminary and other things, and had an important um, writing project. Um, When was that that We May Be One published with Desiree Book, Tom? Uh, The end of September of 2017. 2017. That's been out a year and a half. It's a wonderful book, uh, That We May Be One, A Gay Mormon's Perspective on Faith and Family, or is it family? Okay. So you can, you can tell when it was published because it, it now should be called the Gay Latter-day Saints Perspective on Faith. Yeah. So did you and Sherry do come up with that title? <laughs> it was, there was the work of many hands. There. That's on her. She should have known. She should have seen that coming. <laughs> Patrick um, uh, is a currently is actually in the process of relocating our way, mm-hmm. and we're we're blessed. We're going to bless be blessed to have him uh, as a Utah resident in Cache County, assuming Phil Barlow's position uh, as the Leonard Arrington chair of, help me finish that, Mormon history stuff. and culture. Okay, good. But currently serving, you're in Claremont um, and as Dean of the uh, Graduate School. Yeah, uh, School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University. Maybe you should just finish this. Yeah, right. <laughs> you were doing great. <laughs> and that's going to, that, that shift uh, from, from California to Utah is going to give him more time to write, which is going to be a blessing 
for us all because he's got a lot of books uh, ready to come forth. And as Dean didn't have the, the time to write that he had wished he had. So welcome. Yeah. Thanks. Great to be here. Did you find a house yet? You're we did. We uh, So we're going through that whole process. Nice. Yeah. Good. Well, we, um, the occasion, what brings us together today, um, and Tom, I, you're, you're down there. I, you, you could have been at Patrick's home, but then we decided, you, yeah, you need two, actually two laptops, but you were going to be together today, but you're in California today. I am. Um, <clears throat> but we, uh, we spoke, both of us spoke last week um, after the uh, an announcement of a reversal of a very controversial policy by the church. And we're going to, we're, we're going to get to that in a bit. Um, a lot of people asked, um, are you going to speak to this issue? And who would, um, and, and the, the two people that came to mind uh, were Tom Christofferson and Patrick Mason. So we'll explore that a little bit, but I wanted to just, first of all, um, and we're, we're going to explore it and also celebrate it because I think it's worth celebrating that this happened. Um, and, um, but I first want to just get your take from, from conference. So this last conference, how do you experience conference and were there some messages that, uh, particularly struck your hearts? Well, I'll, I'll go first. I mean, I, uh, we had a bit of a strange conference experience because we were buying a house. And so, so some of what, what was, uh, it was, it was done remotely and by radio uh, instead of sitting in front of the TV, but um, but I was really struck with the the very opening talk of conference by Elder Suarez, uh, which I thought was was a wonderful and gentle invitation uh, to to come to Christ. Uh, I, I, he has a really nice way about him, and and I think it set a nice tone uh, of, of ministry and uh, asking people to reach out. I was also really struck by um, Sharon Eubanks' talk. Uh, I think she has such a, a powerful. Uh, story, but also she's seen so much around the world in terms of her work with humanitarian aid, and and so I think she is really sensitive to um, to a lot of suffering in the world, uh, in the church, but outside as well, and really sees discipleship of, in Christ as as a way to to meet some of those needs. And so I, I I hear her; she really resonates with me, and and I feel my discipleship enriched by uh, and listen, by listening to her. So yeah, th those were two of the highlights for me. Is there any way we can reserve just a regular spot for Sharon on the conference? In the I, yeah, can, can, can we just have her speak? Every session would be fine with me. Right. I, I loved her talk as well. I am. <clears throat> and also the one that she gave at BYU last year, um, as just as she'd been called in the Relief Site General Presidency. But uh, about uh, much of it was about LDS Charities and the, the work that she does in her professional life. And it's so impressive. Um, I had shown it to a bunch of institute kids as I was teaching over there, and uh, you know, the, the, a they were unfamiliar with the scope of the church's humanitarian effort, and b her comment in that talk was that you are the gift. You know, it's not it's not the wells, it's not the sanitation kits or whatever else we do. It's it's the gift that you yourself are in the lives of other people, and as you reach out whenever you can see need. And I thought her talk uh, in general conference was kind of a continuation of that theme of that you know, in the Savior's way, how can we alleviate suffering and and recognize his love for all and ensure that when we ourselves feel we don't fit, that we access his love and, and care. I thought similarly, uh, Eller Holland's talk about the sacrament and how the sacrament itself can be a moment of uh, compassionate outreach, of 
our prayer for those on the pew who are in need and and uh, and also then to to find ways to serve in that regard um, the The one thing that was interesting being in the conference center at the very end as President Nelson gave his closing remarks and talked about the importance of temples it was really beautiful and you could have honestly you could have heard a pin drop even before he said and please you know, keep your <laughs> your joyous reactions uh, muted uh, as I announce these temples, and it was and people did. It was really it was just incredibly reverent. And then as soon as he finished and the choir began that final song, you couldn't hear the first phrase or two of the choir because it was buzz 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 all through the conversation. So so people could keep it quiet for a moment, but as soon as he was finished, they needed to chat about it. I do have to say, I, I liked the cheers from last time. I liked the spontaneous cheers. You know, I, I understand the principle of reverence, but, uh, but uh, that it, was, it was nice to hear people's exuberance. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about what happened uh, Thursday last. So um, today's Saturday, so I guess it was nine days ago. Um, I had gotten, I had received an email really early that morning from a mutual friend of ours back on the East Coast. I don't know if you guys got the same thing, but... Um, that there was going to be some announcement and it was going to be about uh, the um, about an important LGBT issue and so I uh, as soon as I got that I texted I texted you Tom and said what do you know and of course you know it's like no more than you do I guess we'll wait till nine o'clock and hear what happens Um, but um, so why don't I mean who wants to start on this one what what happened on Thursday and and what what were we what policy was let's talk a little bit about the the original policy that was um controversial i think to put it mildly when it was announced maybe maybe we start with that in in just in reading or using as the source uh president nelson's talk in hawaii in january of 2015 what he seemed to say in there was that the 12 and first presidency had been considering for a period of time um how to how to respond or prepare what to say uh, as far as doctrinally, the impact of same-sex marriage that the Supreme Court was ruling on and then had ruled on in the United States uh, and joining other countries that already had approved um, same-sex marriage. And so he, he seems to say in that talk that they'd been exchanging views or discussing widely uh, ways that the, the church might respond. Um, and then at some point in November, I guess, uh, felt that uh, President Monson in the meeting was inspired to say uh, this approach, which is what became that uh, policy of 2015, or 20, yeah, November 2015, um, and that the, those who were in the room um, assented to the revelation they felt had been received. Yeah, um, so, so then the policy was? So the policy really had, I mean, I, I think as most of us think about it, there are three parts. One is, that the couple themselves, the two men or two women uh, who are parties to that marriage uh, would now be considered apostate. And so the in the handbook of instructions under the heading of apostasy would now include same-sex marriage, those who enter into a same-sex marriage. Uh, the piece that was probably most surprising to most people was the second, that uh, the children of such unions would not be able to receive ordinances in the church until they reached age 18, and that within the first week was modified to be that uh, that it only related to those who had um, sole custody or majority custody of a child within that 
same-sex union. So children of a prior marriage where there's a joint custody arrangement were then removed from the impact of the policy. <clears throat> and obviously that would be by far the larger number of, of uh, kids impacted potentially. The third piece that, uh, or at least I think of it as a separate piece, was the requirement of that individual at age 18 also to, um, in some sense, uh, uh, pass judgment on the marriage of that child's parents and uh, and their refutation or rebuttal or whatever, however, whatever word to use of that marriage, that somehow they would acknowledge to a leader in in preparing for their own ordinances that they uh, were not in support of gay marriage themselves. So this was a shock. This was actually, it was, ironically, um, your brother Todd was uh, asked to deliver that, that policy to the church, which had to be yeah. interesting for you. I mean, I think it was released in the handbook of instructions and then you got to consider that's a pretty large universe of state presidencies, high councils, bishoprics, you know, who have access to that around the church. And um, I think there are other officers as well. So, you know, when it, it hit, obviously it was going to grab attention of some people and it did and was passed around quickly. So the, the next day, um, Elder Chris Arbson was head of public affairs at the time. That was his assignment as a senior advisor and felt that something more needed to be said to go along with this. And, and so um, he was asked to do this interview with Mike, um, who, uh, Otterson. Otterson, thank you. Was, my, my former bishop was Oscarson. I was getting that wrong. <laughs> but Mike Otterson was the, the, the head of public affairs uh, full-time at the time, and, and they did that interview. And I, I know we're jumping ahead, but I gotta tell you that Elder Christopherson's four younger brothers uh, being very um, protective of him, wished that he had gotten to announce the revision of the policy or the rescission of the policy. <laughs> he ended up being the face of the first time around. <laughs> anyway. That was not that was not lost on us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I can I ask you just personally? Uh, let's talk about maybe two things. What was your personal? What were your personal feelings about this policy when it was announced, and subsequently, your reaction? Well, my, I would say my initial reaction was I was devastated. I just, it came as such a bolt from blue. If you remember earlier in 2015, really, the uh, mormonsandgays.org website had become more prominent and more material been added to it. It, just, it was a very, a big step, it felt. Uh, and that was also when the, the Utah State Legislature had passed the, the anti-discrimination housing and employment bill that included LGBTQ people. And so it kind of felt in 2015 that we were on this um, very hopeful, right? That, we, that, that the communication was better, that um, there seemed to be real opportunities for how we could move forward in the church uh, in a more inclusive, encompassing way of LGBTQ folks. And, um, and then the policy hit, and that felt like a brick wall. Um, but it also, you know, I had, I had and have friends who were married at the time and who got married since. And I, it has been very hard to um, use the word apostasy for people I love. I just don't uh, have me to wrap my head around that one. I, over time, what I would say, you know, that the initial shock of it obviously wore off. Um, and and it, it seemed that uh, many uh, state presidents and bishops were kind of taking a wait and see approach or um, didn't, they weren't out hunting 
uh, couple, couples to excommunicate, it seemed. And I was grateful for that, grateful that, um, that there was a, an embrace somehow or a welcome that we wanted to try and have uh, people feel that if they came to church, they weren't suddenly going to be relieved of their membership. That, but it was uneven, as always. And, uh, and over time, my, my, my view came to be like in my lived experience, you know, uh, marriage between uh, um, same-sex couples has been a positive thing and that it brings greater stability and, and commitment to one another and, and where their families, where the children, that it also brought a greater sense of uh, permanence and strength in that setting. Um, and, and on the other hand, I, I honestly and completely believe in prophets, seers, and revelators' ability to see what I don't. So I always had to say, look, it, it doesn't make sense to me in terms of my own experience, but I'm willing to say they, that you know, others may see what I don't. And, and really just to try and say, okay, I'm going to keep moving forward to see if I can gain more understanding or feel more at peace with it. Uh, and, um, and over time, hope that I'll have greater clarity for it. Patrick? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I'd echo what, what Tom said, that it, it was devastating to, to a lot of people. And of course, not just to LGBTQ members of the church, um, but increasingly, uh, members of the church have uh, LGBTQ family members or friends or, or just, or coworkers, right? And, and that they saw, so even if they weren't, you know, gay themselves, that they'd seen what, what Tom just said, that these relationships, especially marriages, had a stabilizing effect, that they saw that people uh, were deeply committed in these relationships, that I think in our broader culture, at least in the United States, I know this isn't true uh, everywhere around the world, but, but a lot of the stigma um, of homosexuality has has been uh, erased or or at least has lessened uh, over time, and so people's experience is very different than than it used to be. So actually, a lot of the people that I talked to were straight members of the church um, who were really struggling with this, maybe because of of gay members or friends, um, but also because of the theological questions that raised too. They said, "Hey, I was always raised to believe." in the second article of faith, right? That, um, that, that uh, a person isn't accountable for the sins of their fathers. In this case, maybe literally uh, fathers. And, uh, and so, so, so I, th I think people were wrestling with it in a lot of levels because it did see, seem like such a divergence, such a detour from the path that the church had been going on uh, in, in previous years. So it, it, was, it was devastating, but it was also confusing to a lot of people. And, and I don't think we can minimize the amount of hurt, the amount of pain that, that came about as, as a result of this policy for straight and gay members of the church alike. Yeah. Uh, I, I, for me personally, I felt that I felt like it was wrong. Let's just be straight about it. It felt to me wrong in my bones to do that. And, and um, I, interestingly, I um, sat down with my mother-in-law who was perhaps the most faithful, conventional, <laughs> Uh, but you know, really loving uh, person, one of my hero, true heroes in life. And I asked her what she, uh, how she felt about it. I don't know if she's ever seriously questioned any decision uh, by the church in her life. And she says, that doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> I had the same thing. I had so many conversations with people that this was the first time they said they had ever disagreed with, with the policy that, that came from the brethren. 
Yeah, go ahead, Tom. I was going to say, I think in that sense, it, it was uh, the distinction between policy and doctrine um, is an important one, and yet it, it uh, in real life, it didn't feel to be, it felt like a, what is it, a distinction without a difference or something, but yeah, it, um, I mean, just, it felt so heavy and strong, and I, and I think each one of the three of us could probably sit down with a pad of paper and write for a significant period of time how many people we know have either formally left the church or informally left the church uh, because they couldn't reconcile, you know, their personal sense of morality with that, yeah. that approach. I, I remember conversations with our children and we, our children were, we were pretty shocked by it. And, and um, they're, they're all believing faithful members, but, you know, surprised and did not, you know, so they, they kind of came to us and wanted wisdom and insight on this. And I, my, my insight was, this is maybe the day of or the day after the announcement is, well, this has to be reversed. It just seems like it has to be, it, it seems like a mistake. <clears throat> but then um, it, it, it wasn't immediately reversed and, and um, uh, Elder Nelson did make a speech to uh, as a worldwide youth fireside. Is that, is that right? Um, from Hawaii and, uh, and, and indicated that, um, that he felt and the quorum of the 12 felt that this was uh, inspiration moving upon the president of the church. And so that uh, seemed to, set this in stone it, it seemed like maybe the die was cast on this um, but yet here we are three and a half years later and this policy is reversed so yeah thoughts on what happened in the now you can so this would seem to unless you're totally incurious uh, this se would seem to raise questions <laughs> right um, say say something about that one of you. <laughs> well, I, yeah, sure. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, I, a lot of people, uh, I think, felt an immediate sense of relief. Uh, and, uh, you know, people had been confused or hurt by the policy. So I think there was a lot of gratitude that, that, it, that it was changed. But, it, but then also, uh, just like the, the, the original policy led to confusion, this one, uh, the reversal, that led to confusion, maybe of a slightly different sort. And, and wondering, well, if it was... If it was God's will in November 2015, did God change his mind uh, over the course of three and a half years? Uh, or if this isn't about God changing his mind, what does this tell us about the way that revelation works in the church? What does it tell us about the way the prophecies and revelators work? Did they get their signals mixed last time? Or are they caving to pressure this time? I mean, so, I, you know, you could see a lot of different theories and questions and, and things that, that I... I think are um, honest, sincere questions, right? What does this tell us when such, when a policy of such weight and such gravity, right? This this wasn't like a little change in the missionary handbook or you know what we do and or don't do in chapels or something like that. I mean, this this really affected people's lives, and so what does it tell us either about the way that the policy came about or the way that it was reversed? And then what does it tell us about our relationship to to prophets, seers, and revelators? So. Um, so I'm, and a lot of people have, have been feeling, hey, well, I'm, we're, we're glad it's reversed, but, um, but a lot of people have been wanting some kind of acknowledgement of, of the pain uh, and hurt that, that it caused, uh, even an apology that, that is, hasn't been 
the kind of thing that the church has done. But uh, I, I think a lot of people are still left waiting for more. And the fact that it wasn't talked about at all in conference, uh, I, th I think, um, left people wishing for more. I think the same thing that it would be, you know, what apology may or may not be the frame of it, but it would be helpful, I think, just to understand process from the point of view of what do we learn. Yeah. So right. as we as we strive to um, ourselves receive revelation and and to and discern uh, carefully that as we grow in the spirit of revelation over time. You know, what can we learn personally? What, what do we learn together as a church um, from the experience that could be useful to all of us going forward? And I hope that whatever appropriate moment, something like that would be coming. I also, it, you know, I will, we may never know all the circumstances of it, but uh, one of the uh, general authorities in a priesthood leadership conference a few months ago that a friend of mine was attending said um, that, uh, that, of those who had applied for an exception from the um, condition about ordinances for children of a same-sex union, um, that to his knowledge, all or nearly all had been approved. And I know of three cases, and all three of those were approved. So I, you know, I don't know what that means, but but it, but perhaps one of the things that was part of the conversation is, you know, which is the exception, which is the rule if all the exceptions are being granted. And, and again, maybe there's a, a better way to, to think about that or, and seeing so many individual circumstances that merited an exception, perhaps that gave a sense that uh, most people who were desirous of the ordinance would fit you know, the criteria required for an exception. And I, I think it, that, that's a great point, Tom. And I think it's it's a it's helpful to remember that the the language of the policy in, in November 2015 was actually lifted from the church's policy in the way that it treats children of polygamous families, and so, you know, it, so there there could have been, and again, I I wasn't in the room, I, and none of us were, but but a, a kind of revelatory and, and inspired experience in, in terms of trying to needing to respond to the legalization of same-sex marriage, and and here's a tool available to us. Um, and, and so we'll apply that, that tool, but as you said, if, if all the exceptions are being granted, then it becomes increasingly clear that that tool is not actually doing what we thought it was going to do. Right. And, uh, and, and so that leads to further thought and consideration, uh, and, and, and greater, uh, clarity and, and inspiration. I think if someone operates with the model that <clears throat> the church leaders receive unambiguous um, direction from the Lord on all important matters. And I know, I, I know a lot of our co-congregants uh, believe that, that um, there's a substantial number of people, I believe, in number uh, in the church that, that believe that in these councils that you know, Christ is personally involved and walks and talks um, and so the, I, I'm sure the expectation would be that on an issue this important, they would receive some unambiguous answer. But what we know about the process, and I think it's worth, it's worth reading what, we can speculate on a lot of things, but it's worth, I think, reading what President Nelson said. And Tom, you sent this over just before our conversation here, so I'm going to read it. Um, 
he says, this is what he said in the CES fireside. We sustained 15 men who are ordained as prophets, seers, and revelators. When a thorny problem arises, and they only seem to get thornier each day, these 15 men wrestle with the issue, trying to see all the ramifications of various courses of action, and they diligently seek to hear the voice of the Lord. After fasting, praying, studying, studying, pondering, and counseling with my brethren about weighty issues, it is not unusual for me to be awakened during the night with further impressions about issues with which we are concerned, and my brethren have the same experience. Now, this is, remember, he was, a, he was an apostle. This is before he was president of the church, correct? Mm -hmm. President of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. Quorum of the Twelve at the time, yeah. Oh, and they, so he says, the first presidency and quorum of the 12 apostles counsel together and share all the Lord has directed us to understand and to feel individually and collectively. And then we watch the Lord move upon the president of the church to proclaim the Lord's will. Then he says, he, he says, filled with compassion for all and especially for the children, talking about the same-sex marriage, uh, the, the, this original policy, we wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of his hope for eternal life for each of his children, we considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arrive, arise. These are the deliberations to which we are not uh, privy, obviously. Um, but he says, we met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then he said, and then when the Lord inspired his prophet Thomas S. Monson to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. Um, when that, um, I think when the president of the church makes a decision like that, and I think Tom, you expressed this, we may continue to have questions about it as I did, but I've covenanted to sustain and obviously, this is something that was very, very difficult that, the, that they were struggling with, and there was no unambiguous uh, um, counsel being given to the Quorum of the Twelve during these deliberations. It was a tough, it's a tough issue that they are wrestling with. And the fact that this policy was addressed or reversed three and a half years later, to me, may indicate that it's something we're still wrestling with. What are your comments on that? I hope so. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a, there's a complex and interrelated set of questions here. You know, what is the, what is the place in the plan of salvation for people who in this life are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender? What is it, or queer, what is it going to mean? And how, what should that mean for us in, in, uh, as Christians and, and those who desire to show compassion to all in this life and, and, you know, how do we, prepare for the next life in light of that. So there's, I think there's a ton of things to, to think about in that regard that I'm, that I appreciate they are wrestling with. I am um, just in one quick comment on the nature of revelation. I guess I heard the phrase used not too long ago of uh, spiritual dictation. And to me, that's, that just sets a, a very inaccurate perception because it suggests that the recipient of uh, inspiration revelation is passive. And I don't think that's true at all. I think it requires a huge amount of study and effort and a consistent iterative kind of approach to refining the ideas. And it also, I think revelation comes 
generally without words. So it's, it's really that, as, as President Nelson just described it, you know, it's that process of trying to better understand the feelings that have come and to be able to uh, get closer and closer to you know, what might have been the intended meaning. So to me, it's very much a, I mean, it's a lifelong process for one thing, but it's an iterative process of better understanding the feelings. But, you know, dictation, it's not, in my view. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's a great Joseph Smith quote uh, when he, he was asked about how his society worked and, and how he was able to do all this. And he said, well, I teach my people correct principles and let them govern themselves. And I think that's a correct principle, and I think it says a lot about the way that God relates to the church and to his children. And uh, one of the fundamental principles of uh, the restored gospel is accountability and, and choice, free agency, all of these things. And, and so a, a spiritual dictation model of revelation actually sort of works against that core value uh, and that core principle of, of agency and accountability and learning the good for ourselves, uh, learning to discern, learning to, to, to do the will of God. Uh, if, if he is just sending us emails or if we're getting direct downloads uh, straight from heaven that are a word for word, uh, uh, you, you know, sort of ticker tape of, of, of what God has for us or if prophets are doing that, it actually undermines and removes that basic principle of accountability. And so no doubt uh, those of us who, have members of the, who are members of the church have had stronger impressions than others, right? Times that, that we feel almost compelled in, in, in a certain direction, but never actually compelled. Uh, and, and so it always is a process. It's, it's a relationship between ourselves and, and heaven. And, and there's nothing that I've ever heard from a prophet seer or a revelator that makes it sound like their process is any different. Um, they have a larger stewardship than I do, but I've never heard from them that the, the revelation works differently at that level than it does for, for me at, at my level. The principles remain the same. In fact, I've heard them explicitly say that the, that the process is the same process. And that yeah. they grapple with things the same way that we do. If God stepped in and just told us, gave us our marching instructions, we'd never develop any kind of moral imagination or, or even a strong sense of how we, um, how we determine what's moral. Um, so I, you know, maybe there's something in this process that we're supposed to learn about yeah. revelation. I thought it was striking in, in Elder Oaks, President Oaks um, uh, comments within when they released the revision or rescission um, to talk about the effect of, or the, the council, the deliberation councils. And I think that gets what we're just talking about, right? There, I mean, why do we need councils if, if it's uh, dictation? You know, one person can take dictation, but I think the work of councils is to harmonize or to really work through together the, the inspiration and, and revelation received to bounce it through the lens of different individuals' perspectives and experience and understanding and, and in the belief that somehow that united group process will produce something closer to the Lord's intent than the, any one of us just going off on our own. And for any of us who have engaged in councils on a, you know, a ward or stake level or even, you know, family level, but I'm thinking particularly ward council, I've been in a lot of those meetings, the deliberations and the perspectives, different perspectives that are brought to an issue enrich 
engage us. And, and I think I've, we've all been in this situation where we, we come to some understanding together and have a confirmation, a spiritual confirmation. And that is a, that is a beautiful thing to have that confirmation to, and to proceed. And I've, I've also been in council meetings where we simply table things. It's, we, it's not clear. And we, we know that we need to discuss it further. I know that happens in deliberations with the Quorum of the Twelve. I've heard accounts specifically of that. So, so maybe, the, maybe what's happening here um, at the level of the top church leadership reflect a process that we as a church, as the body of Christ, are challenged to engage. It's easy. I mean, when we've talked about this in the past, we, all, we, we usually hearken back to something like the um, priesthood ban on, on blacks. And we'd say, what would have happened if during that, those decades, if we as a people had grappled more with the issue instead of just punting and ceding our moral authority to church leadership? Would, would things have changed faster because we were challenged to do that? We had to process it as a people and come to that conclusion. Well, now we have an example that's much more recent and we seem to be still, uh, I think, wrestling with this issue. And, um, and maybe that's what we're supposed to be doing. Although there are a lot of people that would just like to say, just tell us, just tell us what, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, love, I love your impression on this, but you know, I, I sort of felt like this is an example of the prayers of the people and the prayers of the prophet being united in the in the sense of you know I, I feel like many people in the church have have been praying are praying that you know that more light and knowledge will come on this topic and that uh, that our hearts would be prepared for whatever the Lord would tell us whenever He's ready and and at the same time praying that prophets will have the questions clear in their minds to be able to seek the guidance, whatever, and, and prophets going about that activity. But so to me, it's, it's an example of a united effort that each of us in our sphere is uh, pleading with the Lord to help us know more. Yeah. Patrick, yeah. Tom's, Tom's writing a piece uh, that we'll be publishing soon on our website. And I remember one of the questions that you pose in that piece, I, I paraphrase but it's like, are we, as we struggle with this issue and try to get further light and knowledge, are, do we start with a presumption of what God will not reveal? Because if we do, <laughs> we might be precluding uh, what, we're, what, we're, what we uh, say we're seeking for. Yeah. yeah, I think we have to always be open to, to surprise, right? And, and humility is so much part of this that... Uh, Humility to learn things, humility to, to think that our own perspective might be wrong or might be limited. Uh, that's, that's a hard thing for human beings to do, especially humans in the first world with access to the internet. And, and we, we have a pretty good sense of what we think we are and what we're all about. And uh, that's, I think that's part of the, the gift of prophets to the church is that they, uh, they require a kind of humility of, of the church uh, as, as we seek to commune with them and, and sustain them. And, you know, sustaining prophets doesn't require swallowing your tongue, doesn't require uh, setting aside your conscience, doesn't, doesn't require um, not thinking deeply and wrestling with these, these kinds of things. I mean, uh, it, for me, it, it just, it, it shows the importance of the faithful struggle. 
Uh, uh, there are a lot of ways to respond, and, and I never want to minimize or trivialize, you know, when, when somebody's been deeply hurt, when their family's been deeply hurt, um, who am I to, to judge their response to, to that hurt? Um, but I always admire that the people who are, who are willing to stick with it um, because their voices and keeping that within the body of Christ, keeping that experience, even that pain within the body of Christ, uh, I think forces the rest of the body to reckon with that, right? And, and think about what are ways that, that we can make the body more whole and, and that we can have more healing and, and reconciliation uh, because of the people sitting next to me in the pew who are faithful witnesses of discipleship. Uh, rather than them writing me off or me writing them off, what does it mean for us to worship Christ together? Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I don't know, but I would imagine that um, in this instance, there were many, many people who faithfully made their voice known, probably in letters to general authorities or to local leaders. I, I would imagine that I, we were at dinner with some dear friends uh, last night and we're talking about this. And um, she, she said, um, you know, I, I hadn't really, I hadn't had a personal engagement with this issue before. I don't have anyone in my family that's, you know, any LGBT members of my family or any really close friends. But when that policy was announced, um, it made me aware, more aware of the pain because of what came out of that when the original policy announced in 2015. I, I found myself coming, she said, I found myself coming emotionally to the defense of these people. And in, and in that process, I think gained a lot more empathy. And so that when this reversal was announced, it was a celebration for me where otherwise I might've just said, man, you know, it's, oh, they changed their mind or whatever, you know, God's do. So I think um, that even that, and what you could consider an unfortunate policy for her engaged her in the struggle. And, and that looks like that's the very untidy way that a, that a faith community engages in, in deep uh, moral issues like this, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that could be one of the lessons learned of the process, again, because the, the price of tuition has been incredibly steep in mm -hmm. three and a half years. So, you know, I, I hope that we find lots of things we can learn from the experience, but, but certainly one is the one you and Patrick just said, how can we draw closer together as the body of Christ in the most difficult moments for one member or one part of the body. And, and, and could we do more at holding people closer to us, even when they find it so difficult or we find it at in a given moment, so difficult to feel comfortable or at home uh, in the congregation. Any, any final thoughts, you two? Thanks for, Thanks for sharing this uh, time together. And um. but I, you know, I, I continue to feel that the a special gratitude um, that the First Presidency of Quorum of Twelve continue to wrestle with these questions, as I do, and as I think uh, so many people in the church do. I um, I think the the Lord is in the struggle in the sense of His care for us as we wrestle with such difficult things and His willingness to walk with us, if not to answer our questions immediately, at least to give us the strength to continue to move forward. And I hope we um, provide that strength as well to our brothers and sisters who have felt that they couldn't continue to walk with us, that our love is unchanged and our desire to 
be a part of their lives, whether they're in or out of the church, remains unchanged. But our recognition, as Patrick said, of the of the cost of this, uh, I, I just want to be sure we've that we are um, able to move forward because of the experience, sadder but wiser, uh, but perhaps more faithful too. That the that the Lord hears the prayers of His people, and that you know, we're on a long trajectory. Um, but it is heading in a direction of greater understanding of uh, how the Lord sees all of his people. I mean, can I say that from the start, Tom, you, that's, been, that's been the approach you've taken. Pray that greater understanding will emerge. And who's to say that those prayers did not make the difference? I, it seems that President Nelson may have changed his mind on this. It would have been easy for him, I suppose, to um, defend his previous position, um, but being open and uh, to um, uh, learning more and learning the word of the Lord, I think we, we need to give him credit for that and, um, and celebrate, celebrate that. Um, Patrick, what are your... Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, a, a phrase that Tom used is sort of ringing in my head, to, to, you know, the price of tuition has been steep, and, and, and that's right. And one of my favorite books all time is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. Mm-hmm. And discipleship is costly. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that Jesus taught. But unfortunately for me and where, um, where my heart breaks is that uh, too often in the church, our, that, that price or that cost has been, been paid with the pain of others, right? And so I, I can talk about things that I've learned from as I think about the priesthood ban or things that I've learned from the past three and a half years, but, but frankly, that, that the real price was paid by other people. And I hope that, uh, and, and pray, and, and I do believe the spirit is moving upon the church. And, uh, uh, but I hope and pray that, that as we move forward as, as the body of Christ, that we learn some of these lessons, maybe without other people's pain. Uh, that's, uh, that, that we can reflect more deeply upon the life and teaching and ministry of the Savior. And it, it's tough. I mean, I, I'm so sympathetic to, to any leader who has to deal with a very complicated world and how do you apply gospel principles in it for an entire church. Uh, I mean, it's, I just have deep sympathy, empathy, charity, uh, you know, and love for, for our leaders. Um, but, but I hope that as a people, uh, we we just strive to be better Christians. That, that's what it's all about. And, and, and along the way, maybe we'll learn our lessons with, without doing it on, on, on other people's backs. Yeah. Well said. Well, thank you, too. Uh, Patrick Post, he wrote an, a beautiful piece for us for Faith Matters um, uh, called Searching for Infallible Prophets. I think Something like that, right. <laughs> terrific piece. You go to faithmatters.org, you can, you can read that piece. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, yeah, pick the right two, the right two people to talk to about this. I guess it's been always great to be with you two brothers. I learn a lot from you guys. Yeah, I love you guys. Thank you both.